church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. After a couple of weeks there in our holidays, we are now back to our series in 1 Corinthians. We'll be picking up in verse 12, as it says on the cover of the connector today, as I warned you last week, these next two sermons uh, are somewhat of a sensitive nature, and so we are opening our kids' worship area, which is typically open for first through third graders, to our fourth and fifth graders as well. I just want to remind you of two things that we value as a church. Number one, we value uh, expository preaching in our corporate gatherings, which means we don't skip hard texts, and we are going to deal with one today and another next week. Uh, But we also value partnering with parents to disciple their kids. The church doesn't disciple children. Parents are the primary disciples of your kids. So it's your choice if if your children are in this room or not. I'm not making that choice for you. They are leaving now if you don't want awkward questions on the way home. Sorry, middle schoolers, you get to sit through it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are, for the better part of this month, going to be dealing with subjects concerning sexuality and marriage. Paul addresses a lot about marriage in chapter 7, but begins with uh, a command to flee sexual immorality, which is what we're going to consider this morning. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from verses 12 down through the end of the chapter this morning. The word of the Lord reads, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God will raise the Lord, and and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for the gathered body of Christ that is Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather with my brothers and sisters this morning this first Sunday of the new year to read your word, to sing your word, to preach your word, to see your word as we gather together. As we have already sung, Father, we need your help today. Your servant here in this pulpit needs your help. The hearers sitting in these pews today need your help. Because like the original audience in Corinth, we find ourselves living in a culture in a time that is inundated with sexual immorality. We see it on the television. We see it on the internet. We see it in the lives of so many around us, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, even in our own temptations. Help us to run to you our righteousness, Jesus Christ. Instruct us through your word. Change our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, Sexual Purity Matters. My goal isn't to just give you a rule and walk away as is so often the accusation against Christianity and our approach to Scripture, but to tell you not only what the Scriptures tell us to do, but why the Scriptures 
tell us to do it. As I said during my prayer, we find ourselves in a culture somewhat similar at least to that of Paul's original hearers in Corinth. Over the last 50 or 60 years, going back to the early days of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, the Christian position on sex and marriage has become increasingly unpopular. Many of the things that I will say today clearly would be unpopular in the culture in which our church exists. In many cases, the things that we will discuss today would be opposed with a near religious vigor by those that surround us. For instance, to say things that the Bible clearly says, like homosexuality is a sin, no-fault divorce is a sin, cohabitation of heterosexual couples is a sin, the indulgence in pornography is a sin, the engagement of prostitution is a sin. To, to say these things today is to be ridiculed by our culture and our world, but the Bible says them emphatically and clearly. It seems as if some within the church at Corinth that Paul is addressing here at the end of chapter 6 would agree not with Scripture and hopefully with us, but with our culture because they had embraced the worldview of their culture which viewed sex similarly to ours. We have already seen in our study in 1 Corinthians that this church was divided into many factions, some around the cult of personality, others around specific doctrines that they had determined for themselves. There seems as if from, that we get from the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, two factions that existed within the church of Corinth that existed on polar ends of the spectrum as it concerned sex in the Christian life. Some, as we will see today, had given in to the cultural norm that sex existed outside of the body to gratify a natural desire and therefore could not be considered sin. Others, as we will see next week at the beginning of chapter 7, held the position that all sex, even sex within the confines of marriage, should be avoided. So you can imagine the strife that this caused in that church. They were already fighting over who had baptized whom and how they had organized themselves. And you know from what we had seen in chapter 5 that they were allowing great sexual sin to if not be encouraged, at least exist within their midst. And now Paul describes another form of sexual immorality that existed within that church. The faction that he addresses first is the one that had embraced the cultural norm of the day. The temptation to simply say that these are natural urges and because they're natural urges that we should just indulge them however we would like. And it is this group that Paul addresses first. We'll address the other group next week. Now, I must be honest with you. We don't know exactly what the problem is that Paul is addressing. So if I could, I want to address a few of the terms that are mentioned here just so we can get a, a right understanding of, of what's going on, and it's going to help us as we progress our way through this text this morning. I don't often tell you the Greek words because, let's just be frank, you don't really care what the Greek words are, but in this case, it's somewhat helpful to us. One of the most common words that shows up in this section that is translated in the ESV Bible that I'm reading to you today, it's translated sexual immorality, is the Greek word pornea. I tell you that word because it is a word you are familiar with. It is where we get our word pornographic from. It was a general word used in the Greek language to describe sexual immorality. There were other words, more specific words. For instance, that Paul uses in 
chapter 6, earlier in chapter 6, that described homosexuality, that described fornication, that, that described adultery. All of these would be com com all of these would be included in this more general term, pornea, or sexual immorality. So if we're going to define this today, I'm going to use the word sexual immorality a lot today. And so this is what I want you to think when you hear it. That we need to understand sexual immorality as any sexual conduct outside of the bonds of biblical marriage. Paul is going to make the argument in chapter 7 that sex within biblical marriage is good. And the Bible not only makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 7, but elsewhere, and we'll see that next week. But the scriptures are clear that sexual conduct outside of a biblical marriage is immorality. Now, I have to include the terms biblical marriage here because our culture has worked very hard in the last several decades to redefine the term itself. It used to be that at least for a period of time, our culture, even those who were not Christians or nominally so, embraced marriage as the Bible described it. But in the last 50 years or so, a great redefinition has taken place around this term. So we must understand that biblical marriage, as we say in our core beliefs, is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And this is what marriage is, and this is where sexual conduct should find itself exclusively. Paul is also going to address the idea of prostitution in these verses. Where some of our uncertainty about these verses comes in is we're not exactly sure what kind of prostitution Paul is describing. Now, it may be surprising to you that I would say that there are different kinds of prostitution. There were in First. In, in, in Corinth, there were in the age of, that Paul is writing in here in 1 Corinthians, in the Greco-Roman world, multiple versions of prostitution existed. For instance, there, were, there are historical examples of what was known as sacred prostitution, where people would actually engage as a ritualistic act in sexual immorality with a prostitute. There is some evidence that that existed in Corinth, but the majority of that evidence is in ancient Corinth, which was destroyed uh, about 150 years before Jesus and then ultimately rebuilt. And so there's some question whether sacred prostitution was part of new Corinth that this church finds themselves in. We do know that in their day there was what was known as temple prostitution, where the, the engagement of a prostitute was not seen as a ritualistic act, but it was more of a cultural act. It was a part of a festival that temple life was so ingrained in the culture that, and we'll see this later in 1 Corinthians, that the temples kind of had restaurants and they had brothels. And people would, not in a ritualistic sense, but just because it was a part of everyday life in the Roman world, particularly in a city like Corinth, which had a temple to Aphrodite, where much of this likely took place, that people would just engage in eating and engage in sexual sin with prostitutes. There's also the argument to be made that Paul is simply describing secular prostitution. That's that which we would think of, that for an exchange of money, one could gratify pretty much any sexual desire that they have. We're, we can't speak with certainty what type of prostitution Paul is describing, but I don't know that it really matters for the sake of our understanding of the text. So that's just to help us with some definitions as we move into the text. The main idea of today's sermon is that Christians should flee sexual immorality and glorify God with their bodies. These are the actually, as we'll see in a moment, the only two imperatives in these verses. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. This is what Christians are instructed to do in Scripture. We're going to see this really 
I'm dividing this differently. I'm not going uh, in order. So you'll notice in your sermon notes, if you have them in front of you, that I'm going to skip around some of these verses. Because what I want to do is make the imperative argument first, that we should do what the main idea of the text says. And then Paul is going to provide three arguments for why we should do it. And I've restructured them into a flow that's going to make uh, the most sense uh, to us. So let's look at point number one. All justifications for sexual sin fall short as Christians are commanded to live a sexually pure life. Really, there are two things included here, two ideas included here in this point. Number one is that any excuse maybe you have ever given for sexual sin in your life or any excuse you have ever heard anyone else give for sexual sin in their life falls short, that there is no excuse. The Bible leaves us with no excuse to disobey the command of God, which is simple. Live a sexually pure life. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your bodies. Look with me first in verses 12 and 13. You'll notice here that much of these verses are in quotation marks. These are our translators trying to help us to know the argument that Paul is addressing and the argument that he the counter argument that he is making. So the things that are in quotation we should read as statements from the church at Corinth which either either existed as kind of slogans within that city or possibly within writings that Paul or that they had written to Paul. And then the things not in quotation marks are his response to them. So verse 12 begins with a quote, all things are lawful for me. So this is this faction in Corinth who had embraced this worldly mentality of sex making this argument. I can do anything I want to do. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. Then they say it again, all things are lawful for me. And Paul responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. Then another quote, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Likely these are cultural sayings that have been adopted by this faction in Corinth, although it is possible they were written to him in a letter. We see in verse 1 of chapter 7 that Paul begins to address what was written to, written to Paul by this church. So I think it's likely that these are cultural sayings that this group had adopted. And here is their basic argument. Their basic argument is hunger. This is why food comes up. And it's interesting that both Food and prostitution were provided in in pagan temples. That hunger is a natural urge. And as a Christian, I'm free to eat when I'm hungry. That, That seems like a fairly good argument. You're probably going to get hungry right about the time small group ends here in a little while. And you're going to go get something to eat. You're going to go home and eat. You're going to go to a restaurant and eat because you're hungry. And we'll think about temple food later in 1 Corinthians. That's going to be fun for us. But for now, this is, this is their argument. When I get hungry, I eat. So then, like hunger, sex is a natural desire. So when I desire it, this is their argument. As a Christian, I'm free to pursue that desire in, in any way that I choose. All things are lawful for me. If I can go and eat, I can also go engage in prostitution. This argument truly relies on a dominant Greek philosophy of the day that the body really isn't anything important at all. That that the body is really kind of worthless. This was one of the rhetorical points that was very often made by Greek philosophers of the day. That only the spiritual matters, so nothing that you really do with your body matters. We just have these base urges like hunger and like sex. And that we can feed those needs in any way that we want because they're really bodily urges. But Paul counters this argument in these verses. He says, your body does matter. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, Paul says. The body is not quite like hunger. But your body is for the Lord. And the Lord for the, for the body, that, that, that Christian, a Christian understanding of the body is different than a first century Greek philosophical understanding of the body. They saw the body as really kind of worthless, that only spiritual things mattered, and only really kind of thoughts and rhetoric mattered. And so what we did with our body, we were just kind of meeting our basic urges. Paul says for the Christian, we must understand that our bodies are meant for God. And, And because our bodies were created by God and are meant for God, that we have to view the acts of our body as different. For instance, in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, the apostle writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. See, Paul says what we do with our bodies matter. And yes, those who have been brought from death to life still have this sin nature But we can't excuse our sin nature as simply bodily natural urges that we can meet in any way that we would want. That we can't indulge like pagans indulge, but that we have to give ourselves over to Christ and not allow sin to dominate our bodies because of the grace that God has given to us. Next, I want us to consider what what I told you were the two imperatives of this chapter. An imperative is a command. There's only two of them here. The first one in verse 18, and the second one at the end of the section in verse 20. The first imperative is to flee from sexual immorality. That's the imperative. That's the command, to flee from sexual immorality. Paul goes on to write in that verse, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, when I was, I think, growing up, I came up in the 90s when purity culture was really big in the church. Those of you that are around my age, if you grew up in a church like I did, you signed a True Love Waits card. I can almost guarantee you did it, okay? This was kind of a big thing during my generation coming up uh, in, in church. And I heard multiple True Love Waits kinds of sermons. And I think in nearly every one of them, for some reason this has just stuck with me all these years, that I heard, would hear preachers say, this sexual immorality is the only sin that the Bible tells us to flee. Well, you know, that's not true. If you've ever heard somebody say that, because I heard, I heard multiple people say it. It's simply not true. The, the Bible tells us, even in 1 Corinthians, we're told to flee idolatry. Paul also writes in 2 Timothy to flee youthful passions. Th- this idea that, there, that we should separate our sins as sins we should flee from and sins we shouldn't, it's not a great way of looking at this passage. We should flee all sin. We, we, we should flee anything that would bring unrighteousness into our lives. But specifically here, we're instructed to flee from sexual morality, to run away from it. And Paul tells us why briefly. We're going we're gonna to unpack his theological reasons why. But here he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul's description of sexual immorality affects our body. How it affects our body becomes more clear when we understand his appeal in verse 16 to Genesis 2, 24, that the two will become one flesh, that there's something about sex and there's something about sexual immorality that affects, affects Christians in a unique way. While this language here uh, at, the end of verse six, uh, at the end of verse 18 is somewhat difficult for us, the, the message isn't that sexual immorality is the only sin that affects the body. Because we could easily come up with other examples like self-harm, drunkenness, gluttony. But it is the only sin that, that creates a one flesh union, Paul says, Harkening all the way back to Genesis 2, it's the one sin that creates a one flesh union in a, in a way that is against the body. 
Because it is a, it's using our bodies in a way, it's, it's, it's uniting ourselves with another in a way that is against the moral law of God for our bodies. And our bodies are for the Lord. So what is the clear instruction of Scripture? The clear instruction of Scripture is to flee sexual immorality. And here's what the apostle understands. He understands that's going to be difficult in the culture that they live in. And here's what your pastor understands. I understand that that is going to be difficult in the culture that we live in. You say, why, why, did, why do I say that Paul thought it was difficult? Well, think about what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In his next letter to them, he writes this. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of, and notice what he says, of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul says, I'm, I'm gonna come to you and here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid when I get there, there are many of you that are still going to be struggling with having embraced the sexual morality of the day. Why? Why was that a fear for him? And why is that so difficult for so many right now? There, I'm gonna just be honest. There are people in this room sitting right now that you just feel this weight sitting on you because you've embraced the world's view of sexual immorality or you've embraced the world's view of sex that the Bible calls immoral. You, you, you've allowed this to, to become a, 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 a defining part of your life. And it's difficult to remove. Why is it difficult to remove? Because of what it does to our body. Because we're, 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 we're uniting our body with that which we are not supposed to do. And so this is why Paul says, you got to flee from this. you got to run from it. And his fear in 2 Corinthians 12 is that some of them have not done that. So my encouragement to you today is, is heed the first imperative of this text. Flee from sexual immorality. But there's another. At the end of verse 20, glorify God in your body. Christians aren't just told what not to do in Scripture. We're also told what we are supposed to do, what we're supposed to replace our sin nature with. And what we're supposed to replace sexual immorality with is a body that glorifies God. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul will say, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which means there is a version of sex that glorifies God. And that's what we're going to see next week in part in chapter 7, that sex within the confines of marriage glorifies God. It's good. It was created by God. But sex outside of marriage simply gratifies base urges and our sin nature that in a few moments' time will need to be gratified again. But that for the Christian who has gone from death to life, we must flee sexual immorality so that we can glorify God in our bodies. It will mean that we think and act differently than our world does. For the young people in the room, it is going to mean that you stand in stark contrast to your generation's view and practice of sex. More so than the generations before you. It's gotten worse from one generation to the next. By the way, it's been bad for every generation in here. Every now and then, our baby boomer crowd will look at our world and go, how did we get here? Well, the sexual revolution of the 1960s started it. And y'all were young then. And I'm not blaming you for it, but I'm just saying, it has been a temptation since you were young. And it was a temptation when I was young. It has gotten worse, however. It has gotten increasingly worse as our culture has normalized sexual immorality and has now even prized sexual immorality. We now praise sexually immoral people as what as a standard for what is right and good in our culture. So for the young people in the room, for you to flee sexual immorality is going to be difficult. For you to actually stand in your generation and glorify God with your body is going to be extremely difficult. But it doesn't free you from the imperative of the scripture. 
to whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Glorify God with your body. So our two imperatives here, flee and glorify. But here's what I love about Scripture. And it's the thing that so many people don't understand about the goodness of God to us in Scripture. People look at the Bible, particularly people outside the church, they look at the Bible and they think the Bible is just a bunch of rules. Maybe you're here today and you're like, all you've talked about is a bunch of rules, preacher. The Bible's not just a bunch of rules. The Bible is guidance for our lives. It tells us not only how we can be right with God through the gospel of Jesus, but how we can then live obediently to him as new creations in this life. That's what the Bible's about. It's the story of God redeeming a people for himself and then telling those people how to be obedient to him. But he doesn't just say, do this, don't do this. He tells us why these things are good for us. Now, you may be able to find one or two commands in Scripture that don't do that, but the vast majority of them will tell us why, if we're willing to look. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time not just telling you to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with your body, but giving ourselves to the bulk of Paul's argument, which is the why. Why this is important for us. And Paul's going to make three arguments. I am reordering them in a way that I think is going to make sense for us because of the way that we talk about salvation at our church. We talk about salvation here at Nansman River in all three tenses. In the past tense, I was saved when I was regenerated, when I was born again, when I was justified. We talk about salvation in the present tense, that I am being saved. I'm going from one degree of glory to another. I am being transformed in the image of Christ. And in the future tense, that I will one day be saved. We, we call this glorification. So there's justification, past tense, sanctification, present tense, uh, glorification, future tense. And all three of those describe our salvation. And those are actually the three arguments that Paul makes, the why to flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. He makes a past tense, present tense, future tense argument. And so I have arranged the text in that way just so it'll make a little more sense to us. So the first, sexual purity matters. This is point two in your notes, but it's his first why argument. Sexual purity matters because Christians belong to Christ. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He asks a lot of questions here, trying to help them to see the point. Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If you skip down to the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, we read, you are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. So what's the first argument that Paul makes? The first argument that Paul makes is a past tense argument. It is a justification, a regeneration, a, a new life, new birth, new spirit, death to life, darkness to light argument that you now belong to Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That you are now joined with the Spirit with him? Do you not know that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? This is his first argument for why Christians should flee sexual immorality and glorify God with their bodies. Because when you came to Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. You now belong to him. Just as married men and women become one flesh when they consummate their marriage, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, from the very beginning of marriage itself, Christians become one spirit, Paul says, when the Lord saves us. So Paul makes a gospel argument for why sexual purity matters. And here's what we need to understand as we just kind of address the the, the way that our culture has thought about sex and sexual immorality, there are those who claim the name of Christ who have readily, vocally embraced the sexual immorality of our day. But if you look more closely, while they may claim the name of Christ, 
Those who deny the need in our day for a biblical understanding of sexual purity, they almost always also deny the truth of the gospel. Most what we would term today affirming churches, I use the term churches loosely there, some point in their history actually denied the gospel on their march towards sexual perversion. They denied the fact that we are all sinners in need of a savior. They've denied the truth of, of Jesus dying in our place, taking the wrath of God, paying the price by his blood so that we might be saved. You see, once you deny the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel, the, our desperate need for a savior and the once and for all payment for our sins by Christ, it becomes easy then to allow any, any kinds of sin at all to slip into the church. And the apostles of the first century knew this. For instance, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we read this from the apostle Peter, but false prophets also arose among them, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, we don't only live, church, I want you to hear me, we don't only live in a day where our culture has embraced sexual immorality. We live in a day where many people who claim the name of Christ and call themselves Christians and gather in places that call themselves churches have denied the clear teaching of Scripture as it relates to sexual purity. And so many of them have done so because they have truly denied the master who bought them they walked away from the gospel, and in walking away from the gospel, they walked away from the need to be obedient to Christ in all things. We live in a day just as the first century Christians did, where false teaching and destructive heresies and denial of the gospel go hand in hand. But Paul's argument is this. You don't belong to yourself. You, 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 were, you were bought with a price. Here's what he writes in Romans chapter 6. For when you, when you were slaves of sin, he was talking about what we used to be. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at, the, at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me, if you are in Christ today, you are not your own because you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus paid for your salvation in full. You now belong to him. And if you are still dead in your trespasses and sin, know this, that the wages of your sin is death. The fruit of your life will ultimately lead to death and eternal separation from God. But there is a free offer of the gospel to you that you can believe. You can trust in Christ for the remission of your sin. You can believe that he paid the price that you could not pay, giving himself on the cross for you. But hear me, church. We can't believe that. We can't amen that as so many of us do. I preach the gospel every week in sermons here. And, and those are normally the loudest amens I get. I'm glad for that because this is a church that prizes and believes the gospel of Jesus. But we can't on one foot stand on the gospel of Jesus and on the other foot say, eh, I can kind of do whatever I want to. I'm going to just go the way of the world as it relates to sexual purity and sexual morality. No, for those who have believed the gospel, we are called to be obedient to it, to flee sexual immorality, to honor God with our bodies. The second why, which is the third point in your sermon, sexual purity matters because Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We go to the beginning of verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? This is Paul's present tense argument. This is his sanctification argument. You see, let's understand what happens when we're saved. When we're saved, we are born again. We go from death to life. We are regenerated, justified, meaning our sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But we still live in this world battling a sin nature, putting off sin, putting on Christ. That's called sanctification. And a 
massive part of that process is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you come to Christ, one of the things that happens is that you are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit indwells you, meaning you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's made a corporate argument that the gathered church is the temple. We read it in, in verses 16 and 17 of that chapter. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the corporate argument helps us to understand the individual argument. That the temple of God matters. And it's not this temple built with human hands in Jerusalem. It's not a church building like this that was built maybe 25 years ago. It's you that God is building, and when we gather together, it's us. And that our corporate holiness matters, that's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, but what we see here in 1 Corinthians 6 is that your personal holiness matters because the Holy Spirit is in you, my friend. So why do we flee sexual immorality and glorify God with our body? Because the temple's holiness matters. Chapter after chapter of the Old Testament tells us of all of the things God's people did in the Old Testament to purify and to keep holy his temple. That temple's now gone. You have become the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. So your purity matters. The way that we live our lives as we put off sin and put on Christ matters. That's his second argument. His third why is that sexual purity matters because our bodies will share in Christ's resurrection. This is the future tense argument. Let me remind you of what verse 13 says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he's made this connection that our bodies matter. Now he's going to tell us why. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul has a future tense argument for why we should remain sexually pure as Christians, and it is because our bodies will go on. Our bodies will go on. That when we put a body in the ground, we had a funeral here yesterday, and uh, I was talking with some folks as we were eating lunch. Um, Brent Hobbs, had, who's a pastor in Virginia Beach, and the uh, son of, of Barry and Debbie, Barry, one of our elders, uh, had, had preached his grandfather's funeral, and so we were sitting there talking, and we, we, we were talking about how we do funerals, and we were talking about the graveside, uh, the, some of the things that we do at the graveside, and I told Brent, I said, I do the same thing at every graveside I ever go to. So if I ever preach your funeral, and you have a graveside, I can promise you I'm going to say these things. This is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, look out at these graves. Our world says that this is a final resting place, but it's not. Some of you have heard me say those things dozens of times in my years of pastoring this church. Because while we may call that a final resting place, Christians know that it's not. Because one day, the grave is going to give up her dead. One day, just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so will we. Paul makes this argument extensively in 1 Corinthians 15, which, by the way, I'm going to make over a three-week period at Easter this year. We're going to skip ahead in 1 Corinthians at Easter, 1 Corinthians 15, which is this glorious view of resurrection. And in part, he makes this argument. Starting verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says, look, if there's not a future resurrection, what in the world are we even doing here? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then all his coming, those who belong to Christ. You say, what in the world does resurrection have to do with sexual purity? Well, this body, which is for the Lord, which you, are, which you are instructed in obedience to Christ to honor God with your body, we may one day put it in the ground, but Jesus will one day take it out of the ground. It won't stay in that cemetery for long. 
One day Jesus will return, the first fruits of the resurrection, and he will resurrect all those who are in Christ, and our bodies will go into eternity as he is. This is why your body matters. This is why we reject the the Greco-Roman philosophy that really the body doesn't matter at all, only the spiritual matters. No, our bodies will persevere into eternity with Christ, so we must glorify God with our bodies. So what? A question for you. Have I adopted a worldly view of sex, or am I striving through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Christ with my body? I want you to hear me. Just Can I just pastor for a minute? I, I said earlier, maybe 20 minutes or so ago, that some of you just feel this great weight as we talked about this. You just, you're just feeling this great weight because your, your life has, has just been eaten up with sexual sin and you feel like maybe you can't get out from under it. I, I want to encourage you today that your sexual sin does not need to define you That if you're in Christ, it is Christ alone that defines you, my friend. That that you you still can can put off this sin and and put on Christ. It will not be easy, which is why Paul said what he did in 2 Corinthians. It's not going to be easy for you, but you can do this. Hear what he says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, you've probably heard the false statement. Let me repeat that, the false statement. God will not give you more than you can bear. That's not in the Bible anywhere. God will not give you any more than his power through you can bear. That's a true way of saying what's in Scripture. That God is the one through his Holy Spirit that provides for you a way of escape, any measure of temptation. And your temptation's not unique. You may say, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard this is for me. You don't know how difficult, you don't know how long I've been in this. Listen, the Scripture is true. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. But Christ can be enough for you. And his Holy Spirit at work in your life can give you the strength to stand up under it. Will it be easy? No. Will it be instantaneous? Probably not. But Christ is enough for you, my friend to flee from sexual morality, to reject the world's view of sex and to embrace obedience to Christ in all things so that you may glorify God with your body. But it may require, I would say in this, in this day, it's likely for many in here that it will require drastic measures Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 addressing the subject of sexual immorality. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. Sexual sin is one of the areas, not the only, but one of the areas in our lives that may require drastic drastic measures to be taken in order to ensure obedience. I've sat with men talking about sexual sin. I've read this scripture and I've said, what is that going to mean for you? And all of a sudden, Guys get real clammed up because what they know that it means, they know that it means that they may have to go back to a smart, uh, flip phone instead of a smartphone. <laughs> it, 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 it may mean that they have to cut off some relationships in their lives. It may mean that they have to start viewing sex different than hunger because our world tells us, just as the Corinthians world did, that these are just natural desires that people have and, and we just give in to them whenever we want to. And what the scriptures call us to is a drastic change of thinking. But I want to encourage you. you on your own, you can't do this particularly if you've regularly given into this over a period of time, on your own, you're not going to be able to do it. But Christ working through you can. And, and this is vital, Christ working through his church. 
Now, what I don't anticipate is people coming up here in front of a few hundred people and confessing this level of sin. But surely there's somebody in this room. Surely there's somebody in your small group. Surely there's some Christian in this church that you are a part of that you can say, I need your help in this effort. I need you to to, to be that encouragement, to be that admonishment. I need you to be that level of accountability for me. It's going to require a level of honesty, church, that maybe we, we don't always or aren't always willing to give ourselves over to. Let me end with this. While we live in this sexually perverse generation, God's people are called to be holy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be extremely countercultural. There, there may be even times that, that you find yourself on the outs of a job, of an opportunity, of, of some type of you know, worldly compensation and advancement because you take a stand for what Scripture says is right as it relates to sexual purity. But hear me, church. This is a stand that is worth taking that we as individuals and that we as Nansman River Baptist Church will seek to be a place that says God is the one who defines what is holy and we will live in his holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that without it, we would all be what the Corinthians once were, sexual immoral, adulterers, thieves, all the things that we saw in earlier in chapter 6, but that your gospel redeemed us, making us something new in Christ. But we also know that the pressures of our world and the temptations of our sin nature and of our adversary can make this difficult. Convince us in our minds and our hearts that it is a worthy pursuit. And then we pray, God, through your power, the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our individual lives and at work in the corporate church of God, that we would flee. Together we would flee. And together we would glorify God with our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me offer two points of invitation before we sing. I know we've gone long. Sorry, Brian. Number one, this is very likely not something you're going to come talk to me in the lobby about. I understand that. So on our website is how to get in touch with me. Easiest thing to do is call the church. Our phone number's there. You can email me directly. My email's on the website. I can't, I don't have time in the day to help every one of you, but we have other pastors. We have other godly people in this room, men and women, because we also recognize that many women struggle with these temptations as well. Men and women that can help you. So don't sit here with a weight on your shoulders and don't ask somebody to help you take it off. But would you reach out to us this week and say, Pastor, I need help in this, and we'll get you the help that you need. It's the first point of invitation. The second is this. Maybe you have lived this sexually immoral life because you're still dead in your trespasses and sin. And if that is true, then you are still that sexually immoral person. But Christ has died so that you could, could, could not be that, so that you could be glorified in him. This is what I want you to come talk to me in the lobby about. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, at the end of our service, I'll be standing out with our Connect team. Would you just come find me? Let me share with you how you can trust Christ salvation from your sin, and then how you can begin to live obediently for him in this life. Church family, will you stand with me as we sing?